0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. Um, And uh, can I say, first of all, a big thank you to um, to Philip and to Joy uh, and John um, and Flo, sorry, Flo, um, for helping us this morning just to focus on the very contradictory nature of this kingdom. Jesus, who is the King, He's the Messiah. He's authenticated by God, on the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothes become gleaming white. God speaks and says it's his beloved son, and yet, the very strange nature of his kingship, he takes the towel and basin, he's the servant of all. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, as we think once more about your work of revolution and transformation in our world, we invite you to open our eyes, challenge us to inspire us. Send your spirit, Lord, we pray, to fill us afresh with enabling power to be able to live as citizens in your surprising and joyous kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1999 in Brunei, Rachel Koshy, her husband Thomas, and their children suffered a break-in to their home, during which Thomas was stabbed and killed by an intruder. She tells of holding him in her arms and praying with him as he bled to death. Afterwards, she moved back to her home in India, and with her children, she tried to rebuild their lives. She found great comfort in the scriptures and also was helped by the words of the Christian writer Max Lucado who wrote this. Because of Calvary, I am free to choose. I choose love. No occasion justifies hatred. No injustice warrants bitterness. I choose joy. I will invite God to be the God of my circumstance. I choose peace. I will live forgiven, I will forgive so that I may live. Trauma of that fateful night with the gruesome memories that haunted her were finally laid to rest when she went back to Brunei to testify at the trial of the murderer. She tells of having to look him in the eye and then of a very moving encounter with the mother and brother of the man who were clearly desperately sorry for what had happened. She says this, that night as I prepared for bed, I gave thanks for the miracle that had just worked in my life. I found it amazing that after these many months of living in fear of the man, I'd been able to meet his eye and establish his guilt. I saw him now, not as a monster who had brutally attacked my husband and irrevocably destroyed my marriage, but as a frail human being caught in the grip of sin and greed. My Christian belief led me to believe that the price for all sin, including the sin of this man, had been paid for on the cross of Calvary. I whispered a prayer for him and for his mother and brother. By God's grace, i had lived up to the motto that I had adopted. I will forgive so that I may live. Stories like that and others we know like George Wilson, father of Marie killed in the Enniskillen bombing in 1987, who stunned the BBC news interviewing viewer by saying that he would bear no ill will or grudge against the people who did this. These sort of stories are just hard to comprehend, aren't they? They seem to fly in the face of all that's normal and all that seems right. They contradict the normal, accepted values of the world. They're unsettling. They make us feel uncomfortable actually. We suppose they're admirable, but somehow they are just troubling and unsettling. Which is how the people who listened to Jesus must have felt when he sat on the mountain in Galilee and taught them about the kingdom of God and said they were to love their enemies. They whose holy land was occupied by pagans, poor people who suffered the burdens of heavy taxes, When he suggested that they should go the extra mile with the occupying soldier after being obligated to carry his load for the first mile. When he told them not to worry about having enough to eat because they could trust God. They who were struggling with the uncertainty of being day laborers. When he told his disciples that the prime position in God's revolutionary new kingdom was last and not first, and that they who were the followers of the Messiah needed to be everybody's servant. And when he told the rich and the powerful that their wealth made it almost impossible to participate in what God was doing in the world, and they needed to give up serving money and look after the poor. The kingdom that Jesus preached was deeply troubling and unsettling to everybody who heard him because it took them entirely by surprise. It was different from what they were expecting. The values of his kingdom actually seemed wrong headed. They seemed upside down really. There was a widespread expectation in Jesus' day that God would come to the rescue of his people and bring in the day that was promised by the prophets. It would be a day of peace and security and blessing. And different groups had different views on how it might all come about. But I think it's fair to say that nobody envisaged it quite like Jesus did. Jewish history had taught the Jewish people that at the time of crisis, their God would break into history and save them. He had done it before when they were slaves in Egypt. God had done it. A couple of hundred years before Jesus, when they were oppressed by the Syrians, They'd risen up in the Maccabean rebellion and God had delivered them. Surely, once again, God would enable them to escape the oppression of the pagans. And if that were to be by violence and force, well, so be it. But that was not the way that Jesus saw things. Actually, far from it. For Jesus, the values of the kingdom of God were radically different from those of his contemporaries and his values still are, 2000 years on, radically different from the way that the world works. Let's have a look of three of these kingdom values. The First is love and forgiveness, not revenge or hate. The normal way of the world is that you love those who are close to you, your family, your friends, those that you don't really know, well you're indifferent to those who harm you in word or deed you perhaps seek to harm back Um, maybe you just feel bad towards them that's what you'd expect that's the normal way of things the greater the degree of hurt inflicted on us by others the greater the reason to hold a grudge or to seek to repay in some sense Most of us probably don't give in to the urge to repay a wrong or get revenge in some extreme way, but many of us do hold on to wrongs done to us, sometimes long past, family members who caused us grief, business colleagues who cheated us, friends who slighted us or didn't support us at a difficult time, people who opposed us out of motives of self-aggrandizement or envy. The feeling of a wrong done can run deep, actually. It's perhaps what the author of the book of Hebrews calls a root of bitterness, and it's destructive. It can gnaw away at us, at us inside. It can cause us, perhaps, health problems. Certainly robs us of joy and of life. Jesus has a great deal to say about forgiveness. When Peter asked him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said, 70 times 70, in other words, don't even keep count Peter. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it was a prayer entirely about the kingdom coming, God's coming kingdom. And forgiveness was a key feature for Jesus. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others, as we forgive our debtors. And in fact, somehow that willingness to forgive others is bound up in our forgiveness by God. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And of course, we see the ultimate example of Jesus himself when he hung on the cross, tortured, mocked, And he prays for the forgiveness of his tormentors. And for Jesus, it wasn't enough just to let go of a wrong suffered. Living in God's revolution required going forward into active love for enemies. He said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And in case we're in any doubt, the idea of love in the New Testament is not a a warm fuzzy feeling it has the sense of active decisive action to benefit someone else and we think Lord you can't be serious decide to do somebody something to benefit that person do you know what they did to me for Jesus forgiveness and love are the hallmarks of life in God's kingdom. They are core kingdom values. They turn the normal values of the world and the normal way of doing things right on their head. It's by love that everyone will know that you are my disciple," says Jesus. It's leaving behind the hurts and the bitterness and the slights and following Jesus in the way of love that brings liberation, that brings life, and it brings joy. Resentment and revenge seeking enslave. Forgiveness and love bring joy and freedom and life. Second kingdom value we want to think about this morning is sharing and compassion, not selfish hoarding. Jesus probably said more about economics than any other issue, actually. In the first three Gospels, one in every 10 verses is about the poor or money, and actually in Luke's Gospel, it's about one in every seven verses. Jesus said it was hard for rich people to participate in God's kingdom because he knew the seductive power of wealth. He knew that it makes a person focus on things and on themselves rather than on loving others. Remember what he said, You cannot serve God and money. You have to choose. It's one or the other. He told one rich young man to give away all his money. After an encounter with Jesus, another rich person decided to give half of his stuff away. And he spoke against rich farmers who pulled down barns and built bigger ones. He said, woe to you who are rich. Don't bother laying up treasure on earth. You're just wasting your time and your life. It's all very uncomfortable, isn't it? Because it's not the way that the world works. Work hard, enjoy the fruits of your labor, spend your money, keep the economy going, save for the future. That's the way the world works, that's the way it is. Money makes the world go round. Money, money, money. It's a rich man's world. Now, you didn't think I'd quote an Abba song, did you? (laughs) But Jesus knew there was more to life than this. Isn't life more than what you eat and the body more than fancy clothes, he said? The problem with wealth is it has the potential to enslave us and to make us think that we depend only on ourselves. And we end up working so hard at it that we end up serving it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of anxiety. If we focus on money, we begin to serve it and we're serving it, we can't be serving God. In the kingdom of God, on the other hand, there is freedom. There's freedom from slavery to ourselves and freedom from slavery to money because we can trust God. Our Heavenly Father, said Jesus, knows what we need and will provide for us. Maybe some of us here this morning are anxious about money. Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount are as relevant now as they were then. Don't be anxious. Your heavenly father looks after the, the birds and the flowers. You can trust God. Seek first the kingdom and his justice. That is where true freedom in life is and forgetting about ourselves and deciding that we're not going to devote ourselves to the quest for an ever improving lifestyle. Rather, we're going to seek justice for others, the justice that God's kingdom demands Trusting, sharing, justice, not selfish hoarding. Looking at it more positively, just think what we can achieve when we share our resources with others. A great many of us have some experience of working with the poor, particularly overseas. It's amazing what can be done with just a little, when you share just a little, how little it takes to feed starving children how little it takes to build schools and medical centers, how little it takes to fund those to provide the services that are needed. Ronald Sider, who wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, said recently, if at this moment in history, a few million generous Christians blessed with material abundance, dare to join hands with the poor around the world, we will decisively influence the course of world history. The Micah call from a broad range of Christian organizations agrees with this and says, this is a moment in history of unique potential. When we have the means to dramatically reduce poverty, we call on Christians everywhere to be agents of change. We really can make a difference. No wonder Jesus talks so much about money. How we need to stop holding on so tightly to what we have to be more open and sharing and to discover that that is where true joy and freedom really comes from. The third value we want to look at is down is up. Service, not priority. When James and John came to Jesus, and they asked if they could get pride of place when Jesus came in his glory, Jesus gave them a lesson on leadership in God's kingdom. With worldly kingdoms, it was all about hierarchy. It's all about great men lording it over others. But Jesus said in God's kingdom, leadership is about being a slave of all. You want to be first, says Jesus, get to the end of the queue, and then start serving everybody else who's in the queue. That's the way things work in Jesus' kingdom. The way up is down. And significantly, Jesus ends his teaching about this to his disciples by saying, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the king, the king in this kingdom, isn't a demanding ruler. The king himself is a slave. What sort of kingdom is this? Because this is not, again, the way the world works, is it? Kings and presidents and prime ministers travel first class in private jets that people do things for them to carry their bags, get their lattes, organize things. That's what you expect. They're busy, they're important. What about King Jesus? In John 13, After eating the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus takes a towel and a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. They're incredulous because this is the job for the lowliest Palestinian slave. How could their master, the Messiah, the king of this newly arriving kingdom, how can he do this? This is not the way that things are supposed to work. They're rulers and they're servants. The two are not to be confused, but Jesus does confuse them because this is the way things work in this confusing, strange, surprising revolution that God has instigated. Demanding, priority, ordering others about, hierarchy, self-serving, self-promotion, all go out the window. And in come humility, servanthood. How do we begin to work something like this out? In so many ways. In our homes, perhaps husbands serving wives, not demanding, not expecting, being prepared to do the menial household chores. Teenagers not expecting parents to provide excellent hotel service, but asking, what can I do? In church, volunteering when the request comes for something practical and work, if you're a manager seeking to provide a servant leadership model for all of us, not standing on ceremony or position, but being prepared just to roll up our sleeves and get stuck in. Perhaps it's at the level of, of not working so hard and so long that we have no energy or time left to find ways of serving the poor and those who are on the margins. There's so many ways in which we can begin to take this teaching about being a servant and work it out in our lives. It really strikes home to every area of our lives. These then are some of the values of the kingdom of God. This is the surprising upside down way in which God's kingdom unfolds. It's by service. It's by compassion, it's by humility, it's by forgiveness, it's by love. And of course, when we look at Jesus, we realize that's exactly the way that he lived. Loving and having compassion on the people who surrounded him in Galilee, particularly the poor and the weak and the sick and those who are on the margins, reacting to his torturers with dignity and courage but with non-violence and his death as sin bearer and victim of victims and subsequent glorious vindication by God when he raised him from the dead, shows that this kingdom, God's kingdom, is a kingdom that surpasses every other kingdom. Where is it that true power and the ability to bring about change and transformation in the world lies? Is it in wealth? Is it in naked military aggression? Is it in self-promotion and aggrandizement? Is it in violence? The cross and the resurrection of Jesus shows us where true power lies. It's in the upside-down values of God's kingdom in love, compassion, forgiveness, service. Those are the things of lasting value. Those are the things of eternal worth. Those are the things where the real power in the world to execute change lie. These are the values that the king himself demonstrated as he lifts the symbols of his kingdom in John 13, the towel and the basin. And they are the values that he calls us his followers to exhibit in our lives. You should do just as I have done to you, he says. As we hear Jesus call this morning, perhaps some of us here are thinking, well, that's all very well, that's all very idealistic, it's well for some, but, you know, I'm not that good. I'd like to be more loving and forgiving. I'd like to be more generous. It sounds hard. What we need to realize this morning is that none of this depends on us and our ability to do the right thing. Swimming against the tide is hard, Confronting the way things are in the world is challenging, but here's the thing. The day of God's kingdom in the Bible was always to be the day of the Spirit. It was the day when the Spirit would flow like a mighty river. It would burst out of people. It would bring God's people into the fullness of all of God's promises. And the good news is that day has arrived. God's Spirit has been poured out in all flesh. As Christians, we've been baptized, we've been filled with the Spirit, that life-giving, energizing, pulsating life of God is in our midst. He is the dynamic, the fuel of the revolution, and if we're willing, he can sweep us up in his flow and enable us to play our full part in God's unfolding purposes. In one sense then, it does not all depend on us. God's grace will give us all that we need to live in the way that he requires. But what he wants are those who are willing, a coalition of the willing, a group of people who'll say yes to God's peaceful revolution of love and forgiveness, who will begin to seek ways to follow Jesus in humility and service in the knowledge that as they do so, they demonstrate the reality and the certainty of a kingdom that will endure forever. May God this morning give us grace to open our lives afresh to the revolutionary values of his kingdom and the fresh empowering of his spirit to enable us to be all that he wants us to be. Amen.